Hello, 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 and welcome to Kicking and Streaming, the show where streaming originals and traditional cinema enter the ring for the ultimate showdown. I'm Bo. And I'm Chris. Are streaming originals the TV movies of the 21st century? Is cinema really different from movies? Is Netflix the future? These questions and more on... Kicking and Streaming. Kick, kicking and... You, you, need, you, need to say, you need to say it with me. No, I thought you... Okay, okay, hold on. Kicking and... Hold on. No, no. Okay. At the same time. Okay. Okay. One, two. Kicking and Streaming. Streaming. Okay. No. Here. No, okay. I'll, I'll count you in. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Kicking and Streaming. You are here for our seventh episode. What a treat. Can't believe we've been at it for seven episodes. I've never not given up on something this far into it. So this is this is a pretty exciting time. Yeah, I I didn't, I, you know, I didn't expect you to be here. <laughs> yeah, you expected by now it was just going to be uh, just kicking. Yeah, just kicking. <laughs> well, to celebrate our seventh episode, I thought I would pick a particularly special film for our good friend Bo here. Uh, so I picked one of the most popular Netflix films of all time. It's the movie Bright by director David Ayer. Now, now, Bo, I don't want you to, to feel like you have to hold back. You know, I want you to be honest about how much you liked this movie because we're all friends here and there are no judgments. Right. So right. I'm excited to hear what you thought of Bright. Well, yeah. Honesty, ahoy. So strap in. <laughs> but first... Are you, is that is that sarc- it, what how did this film do for Netflix? I don't actually know. I mean, was it very popular? Oh my it was. It was it, it is it is one of their highest like most viewed Netflix originals. Okay. Probably not the most viewed thing on Netflix, but as far yeah. as Netflix originals go, it is one of their top viewed. Yeah, I was wondering because for me on the periphery, you know, this is the first time I'm watching it and I was expecting I, I didn't know because I felt like I, it was a flash in the pan thing. Like I heard about it when it happened, you know, big Will Smith film, Netflix original. And then I really didn't hear anything and I wasn't sure how popular it was or not. I do know that that it's um, the only film apparently that Netflix booked a, a two movie deal with. The sequel has already been, you know, was signed in as part of the contract for the first so I don't know when it's happening, but yeah, apparently it's been in development hell. I think with Will Smith's schedule and now with this whole COVID thing, but yeah, yeah. But from what I've heard, it's it's still in the works. Well, yeah, you know, it's mysterious because, like you, I thought who was watching this so many times that it becomes one of the top Netflix original films. But then I also remembered, you know, Adam Sandler has not been unlucky on Netflix. Yeah. He's pretty dang popular. Yeah. And the whole time I'm asking, who's why? But you know, if there's anything the last four years have taught me, it's the existence of the silent majority. So, <laughs> you know, there's there are people out there who really, who just really dig this programming. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, Will Smith has fallen somewhat from the position he once held as like the number one box office draw. But, you know, he, he's still Will Smith, so people are going to tune in, uh, if only for him. That's true, yeah. Okay, so, Bright. Yeah, this is, obviously, like we've been saying, this is a Netflix film. Bright is an amalgam of a cop 
crime procedural and a fantasy. It's the sort of fantasy born from Tolkien and shaped by Dungeons and Dragons and Warcraft. So in this world, mm -hmm. there are humans as we know them, but there are also elves, orcs, and other creatures. But it's all in a modern city. You know, uh, cars, guns, skyscrapers. Looks like it, you know, could be New York or Chicago or any city like that. And segregation seems to be part of this society, uh, so much so that the character of Nick Jacoby, played by Joel Edgerton, an orc. What a talent. Yeah, an orc. He's the uh, first ever orc or uh, orcish police officer in the history of what I assume is America. Is it America? Uh, yeah, they, they actually call the city they're in. They do say it's Los Angeles. They're LAPD. Oh yeah, that's I right. You're right. And, <laughs> I forgot. Yes, you're you're quite and right. They they mention <laughs> they mention Florida at one point too. I got thoughts on that. We'll come back to that later. <laughs> yeah. No, you're. you're I, I was forgetting. You're right. And they do and they do have yeah. flags on there. I mean, yeah. The, the world gets a bit uh, vague and sort of <laughs> ambiguous. But anyway, uh, so. Yeah, that's the setup that uh, Jacoby is is the first orcish police officer, and he's been assigned to a precinct that doesn't want him and a partner who, if not actively trying to push him out, really doesn't care for this situation. And he's played by Will Smith, mm -hmm. uh, who's the, the veteran cop. And as far as the plot, you know, they're in this world and they're partners together and they don't really like it. And everything sort of goes haywire when a violent murder Multi uh, this scene, <laughs> goodness, uh, yeah. Th there's a murder basically that's found out, and there's a magic wand is brought into it, and you know, Chris, I actually have a clip, and I want to play it right, right here, right early in. This is a clip coming from about an hour into the film, about the halfway point of the film, and uh, two characters are gonna kind of help us suss out the plot a little bit. She's infernal. What a shit show. You want to uh, unpack this for me, boss? Layla. Layla was here. What are you talking about? She was sent to kill Tika. And then Tika did that. She wants her wand back, right? Yes. And Tika has it. Yes. And those cops she ran off with, uh, Ward and what? Jacoby, the orc cop we saw at the station. They have no idea who Tika is. It's been 20 years. What does that even mean? 20 years I've been hunting Layla. Without her wand, she's vulnerable. <laughs> okay. 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 So. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so that's a little bit of the plot. And frankly, um, <laughs> I don't know how you felt about this, Chris. What a courtesy. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how you felt about this, Chris, but that, that's about, you know, as much as the listener may be getting from that is about as much as I understood of the plot as well. But, <laughs> but yeah, uh, the, the elephant in the room is that that is the most shameless bit of exposition I have ever encountered in a film. <laughs> You know, there's always the, there's often like a little bit of, 
what the stereot the stereotypical one right is the trope is like okay let's run through the plan one more time you know before we break into the building right. and so that we can bring the audience up to speed but to have one <laughs> character turn to another character and just essentially ask the plot of the movie straight up <laughs> an hour into the film <laughs> Oh. Honestly, I, listen, but I got to be honest. I wish more movies would extend this courtesy. You know, there have been times you feel a little bit lost and you just want a character to break it down for you and to have one of the characters in the movie ask for the breakdown so you don't feel stupid for wanting it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like, and uh, I'll go I'll go even further. <laughs> I want it to be this guy every time. Uh, <laughs> just have him walk onto the screen. <laughs> Because these these two are so I should say for those who may attempt to you know keep track of what's happening in this film, so those two characters are part of the what do they call themselves the the ma- well they're like the magic feds uh, magic control something like they're, that and they're they're a federal no about their name it was I'm pretty sure it was the Department of Magic's Magic Task Force okay. Yes. I'm pretty so, sure there were two magics in a row two, in that title. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, they're, they're basically a federal agency, sort of like the FBI or the CIA or something, that's called in yeah, yeah. when it seems like magic uh, might be part of the scenario. Because al- although this is a world, you know, a, a fantasy world, uh, magic is sort of on the periphery. It's a, a thing that people seem to know about, but they don't ever really encounter. It's like the Force. Yeah, and a lot of people don't seem to even believe in it. Yeah, so very much like the Force. And these guys are called in. And so these are. this is an elf, and the other guy is a, a human character, I think. I thought he was a really tall dwarf. I, yeah, he, he does have that <laughs> He does have that, uh, that Gimli look going on, the beard and all. He's, he does. He's yeah. played by the actor Happy Anderson, by the way. Happy um, Anderson. Happy Anderson. So, yeah, those two are an elf- and a human, and they're uh, sort of getting involved because of this magic wand, which is basically a power. Somebody calls it a at one point like a nuclear warhead that can grant wishes. So that's right. Yeah, it's it's like a nuke that can grant wishes. Yeah, <laughs> that's uh, what current nukes are. If you wish right, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. True. True <laughs> enough. Th- that's the that's the the plot. In a nutshell, as it were. And yeah, the film, you know, in in genre, like I said, it's sort of an amalgam of a cop procedural with a fantasy mystery. There's a lot of, you know, action and and gore, all the, the sex and violence that people want. There's, you know, kind of buddy cop humor and... Um, yeah, you really go whole hog on this it's, one. It's a, lot of, it's a lot of things. It's a lot of things. So... But is it good? <laughs> Listen, let's one, one step at a time. One step at a time. So, uh, where to begin? Okay, I, I, w- I wanted to talk a little bit about just just digging into the the setting here, which obviously uh-huh. yes. is part yes. of the draw of this this whole film, right? I think that people tuning into this are going to be, I mean, to this film specifically, are are going to have watched because of Will Smith or because of the premise. It's you know, it's high concept. It's something that, you know, certainly isn't unheard of. It's been done in some games and um, mm-hmm. in certain novels. I don't know really of any movies that quite 
do this. I'm sure there are some, but yeah, yeah. you get like underworld and a few other kind of uh, yeah. gothic fantasies or something to do. Right. With. So it's sort of, you know, I mean, it isn't too far from some of the darker comic book superhero type, you know, it has that, it has that vibe, but, uh, I want to dive right into one of the other elements of this film, which is the, you know, we're bringing these races together and there's a lot of talk about uh, racism and race relations and clear parallels mm-hmm. to to the things that we're facing today with police, with, you know, things like the, the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, mm-hmm. segregation and racism and all these kind of things. So in this world... Okay, I'm I'm just trying to state a few things that I've observed about how the world of Bright works, and you just you know you just stop me if I'm wrong. So <laughs> okay, I'll be prepared. This seems to be a world which you know, and a story which is race conscious and bringing up issues of prejudice and stereotypes and so on, and yet in a sort of paradoxical way, which we'll touch on soon. Uh, humans seem to kind of be over racism within their own race so far as i can tell like yeah the that was my impression yeah it it just doesn't seem to be an issue like there's no problems with uh you know will smith as the black cop Uh, nobody's none of those issues are coming up his superior is an asian american woman uh you know there's a lot of a lot of the the street gangs that seem to be involved in this on the the human side of things are Hispanic mm-hmm. and nobody seems to have any problems with any of this. There's none of the not even to the level of a cop drama which isn't race specific. Like it's really just not touched on. So humans seem to be to be over their yeah. problems in this world. But but there is very much an animosity and prejudice existing between the three main racial groups which seem to be the orcs, mm-hmm. which are in sort of the fashion that we've been led to believe in this world are, are seen, they're seen as, you know, brutish and uh, villainous and stupid and strong and sort of mm-hmm. vulgar and crass. And they're sort of the proletariat of this world, the gangsters, yeah, yeah. And the, the hoodlums and the hooligans. Humans seem to be kind of uh, in this middle zone and not too unlike we picture humans existing in society today. And then elves are sort of like this elite, you know, they're the, yeah, they're the the upper class. I don't know whether, I, I kind of got some parallels. I don't know if, if this is problematic in itself, but I got some parallels to uh, Jewish people uh, in terms of <laughs> the, sort of existing in the world of high finance. They're... They're big and prevalent, and somehow also on the periphery. But anyway, they're they're like the they're elites. They're they're seen as snobbish, uh-huh. and they're kind of in their own cliques. Now, one of the things that I I'm just going to say right off that I found a bit confusing yeah. is that these are the only groups that are talked about, but they are not the only groups that we see. Yeah, we see a fairy at one point. Yeah, like... we see fairies, which uh, fairies seem to be in this world. They're just sort of like a uh, a pest. And, yeah, they're a pest. They're sort of like a like big wasps or something. And that scene, maybe we can come back to that because that is a lot to unpack. But I was, you know, perplexed by the fact that they're like there are centaur police officers. 
Oh, right. Yeah, you see a couple of them, but there's no mention of that. Like, it's not a big deal. Nobody talks about centaurs or, or their feelings about centaurs. And yeah. the police the police seem to be strictly human. Like, we've got an elf on the, on the magic task force, and... The police all seem to be human. You know, the the hoodlums and gangsters are a mixture of human and orc. But nobody really talks about the, you know, these centaurs that we see. And and further, we also see, which isn't talked about, a dragon. Yeah, that's right. Just cruising around. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, I mean, that's just left. You just see it. There's a big dragon flying by. And you have no idea, like, is this... You know, is this a big dumb beast that's, you know, capable of destruction? Is it a highly intelligent creature? Like n- nobody makes a comment or seems to worry about it. You know, it's just not a big deal. Yeah. It's just a you just see a dragon fly by and and that's it. Yeah, well, especially for anybody who's seen Game of Thrones. I mean, obviously it doesn't speak for all dragons everywhere, but the dragons in that show had the destructive potential of essentially a nuke. They could level a village very, very quickly. So it's yeah, it's a little bit funny to watch this and just see. Yeah, or I was thinking about or Smaug. Yeah, exactly, Smaug, who is one of the most intelligent characters in the story that he's in. Uh, a highly, highly competent, intelligent. Yeah, highly player. intelligent, highly destructive, and and he's just flying over town, and everyone's just like, "Oh, that's just Hank the dragon. He's fine." Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's not even mentioned. None of the characters see the dragon. It's just the audience has shown the dragon for a moment. Um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, that that seems to be the well. Before I go any further on that, let me just throw it over to you. And what I mean, what was your take on you know the races being presented? I mean, this is a big theme of the film. You know, the prejudice yeah. that's going on in, between the groups. I uh, I definitely had thoughts. It's funny that you mention yeah the the the, the unusual kind of faint parallel between uh, elves and and Jewish people, because I thought. Weirdly enough, I mean, it seems pretty clear that, like, the orcs are meant to represent, you know, just, just non-whites in America in general, just, you know, persecuted and... and, and minority and, uh, groups. And... Yeah, minority groups. But the, the interesting thing is, when you hear characters in the movie talk about why they don't like orcs, they refer to an event that happened 2,000 years ago. Right. Specifically that the, the orcs sided with the Dark Lord. So yeah. I was thinking, from a historical standpoint, as far as people bearing a grudge that's thousands of years old, in a way, the orcs were kind of, even though, you know, thematically it wasn't this, but in my head I was thinking, these guys are basically Jewish people, in a, in a way, of that, like... Yeah, you're right. Like, holy yeah. cow, it was 2,000 years ago, let it let it go, kind of thing. But uh, it was it was interesting, because people kept talking about the Dark Lord and this, this, this thing that the orcs did, and it was... 2,000 years ago. And they hold this grudge like it happened last week, like it's this fresh wound that hasn't healed yet, you know? Like, yeah. nobody complaining was alive when it happened. Like, you know, it's <laughs> it's just, it's so interesting to me because, I mean, on the one hand, I'm not going to pretend that, you know, present day 2020 is fully woke and over our troublesome past, there are still plenty of anti-Semites. There's still plenty of general racists and whatnot. But the absolute bald-faced, casual nature of the racism against orcs for a 2,000-year-old grievance was mind-boggling to me. I thought – and plus, the fact that 
I think that they really shot themselves in the foot being as lazy as they were with the world building, because as you as we've pointed out, this takes place in America, a modern day, slightly tangential America that with a, with a, with a Miami and an L.A. and all this other stuff, yeah. which it in my mind brings with it a lot of baggage, a lot of implications, because if Los Angeles still exists, that probably means that, you know, Spanish settlers still existed like you know right. like there there were there there's a lot of history buried under a lot of the the norms and nuances and history of the country that they don't seem to really dig into at all so the whole time i'm watching i'm thinking like was there a jesus in this world <laughs> did did like did did jesus and the dark lord go at it in the in this universe or or did, or, or do you take you know jesus christ arguably the most impactful human being in the history of the Anthropocene and just swap him out with an evil dark Lord, like Voldemort, I'm guessing, or Sauron. And then let, let that, let that historical event simmer for 2000 years. Does the world really look identical to present day current universe America where you've got like, it was crazy to me. Like, yeah, it was literally like you just take a few races and swap them out with some magic races, and you're done. Like that's the world building. I thought was so jarring and lazy. With it yeah. seemed like these major events had almost no impact, other than we all hate orcs. That's like the only lasting cultural ramification of of no Jesus and the existence of a dark lord. It's. I mean, maybe there was a Jesus, you know, I was just, I, I, it was funny that they referenced to 2000 years ago. That's what's on everybody's mind is the dark Lord 2000 years ago. So I'm thinking like, were, was there a crusade? Were there, were, was there the Spanish Inquisition? Is there a Catholic church? And there's like no Catholic church in this universe. That's going to change a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but, you're, you're right. And, and, and plus I, Will Smith even, he even calls an orc Shrek at one point. He says, go home yeah. to Fiona. So yeah. Shrek exists and like that. They really didn't deviate a whole lot from our timeline. Yeah, which is r- really interesting. Uh, and I think bears talking about, even though we're venturing into territory that, you know, that could be seen as nitpicky for what this film is trying to do, right? I mean, it's right, right, yeah. It's meant to be, it, it strikes a tone that has some grittiness to it, but not like a, a raw realism. It's more of a, you know, the like strippers and violence and blood and gangs is added in more for the for the cool factor than the real factor. And Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which this film Well I, I wanna I wanna touch on the the cool factor in a moment. But but yeah, the it bears digging into a little bit because it presents mm-hmm. some things that I think even the viewer who is suspending their disbelief and trying to just go along for the ride is going to run into a few bumps because one of the one of the ironic things to me is in this world, which yes, as you're pointing out, uh, is perplexingly similar to our world, with just these changes that are not small changes and ought to have yeah. much bigger effects than they seem to. The other one that, yeah. that I'm just going to touch on real tangentially here, real quickly, is that the design of the world is the same. Like it looks exactly like our world. And yet, yeah, the architecture, like everything is Yeah, and identical. yet we see, which, you know, has its own uh, problematic uh, historical elements, you know, of would it have developed this way in this very different world. But also 
it's still very much, in, you know, I mean, I suppose the charitable view is that this is a, a statement about privilege, but it's still designed for humans, even though we see that although orcs are humanoid, like we see at one point a guy, a, an orc casually lift up a pickup truck like it's nothing. Yeah. So they're clearly of immense strength, like much stronger than humans and much bigger mm-hmm. and heavier and um, there's comments about like what whether they can jump and what kind of sports they can play and all that kind of stuff, and their their sense of smell comes in and this brings up a couple things. Number the first one, the the one that I was sort of just going to touch on, is that I feel like the design of the world, I mean literally the design of like objects and buildings and cars, would look different in a society where you have distinct races. You know, mm-hmm. touching just on the the two main additions of elves and orcs, which seem to have some different um, needs and functions, there's also the fact, like I talked about, that you just see centaurs on the <laughs> in the edges here every once in a while in the background, like a centaur cop. And yeah. and I'm gonna I'm going to explain the reason why this isn't addressed properly. But it, it does just raise the question of, well, this world looks like this. I mean, how do the – I guess the centaurs can get around on their feet because they're because they're half horse. So they don't need, you know, vehicles or train access or doors that can accommodate them. <laughs> um, but the the other thing – and this is the – this is at the root of several issues that I had watching this film. And that is I think this film is – I think one of its primary concerns before world building, before plot is, is this cool? Does this look cool? And Mm. that's how I think you get the centaurs. I don't even think centaur, I wouldn't be surprised if they're not in the script at all. If it's just something that, you know, (laughs) the production designer and the director came together and said like, oh, you know what? It'd be cool if in this you know, as they're drawing up sketches of what this world looks like, like, oh, instead of just a, a horse cop like you have, you know, in, in big cities still, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. let's have a centaur because, you know, half horse, half cop, like cool. And so, yeah, stick that in. Or like, what if when we pull back, we see a dragon flying over the scape just because, you know, there's some part Wouldn't of there's some part of people that like that they think like that's awesome. Like, oh, skyscrapers and a dragon flying by, like that's so cool. Like, you know, you don't think about that. Dragons yeah. fly by castles or twisty mountain peaks. They don't fly by skyscrapers. And so you just throw these things in, but there's no real consideration to what that actually means for the story you're telling or the world you're building. Yeah. And this breaks down, I think, in, into other aspects of the film, like not just the fantasy setting, but also in the way that the human characters are treated, which ironically, uh-huh. I found to be based on a lot of stereotypes. Like the, I mean, the yeah. the Hispanic, <laughs> the Hispanic, the Hispanic gangsters are oh my just sort of caricatures that are, you know, at least borderline offensive caricatures of, <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it really looks to me, it, it really looks to me like sketches that someone might make. Like sketches, like comic book style sketches of like a, a Mexican gang and that that's sketched out. And not only does that ironically in a film that's talking about racism, you know, that's deriding racism, <laughs> perpetuate stereotypes. But then we go on to like offensive caricatures of women, too, in the in the stripper scene, which I know that such clubs exist and that, uh, you know, crimes happen there and, that you know, there are CD stripper joints and all that. But 
Yeah. It, it brings up a couple things that, again, are, highlight this problem of design forward thinking. And that's when they go in there, you know, you have this sort of now this disrespect to the female characters and this weird caricature way. But you also have implications that I thought were a bit strange because there is no mixed race element of this. But you see, like, for example, there's some sort of prostitute woman like seducing an orc in one of the corner rooms of that stripper club, uh, that strip club that they go in where a big fight scene happens. And uh, yeah. even there, I was kind of going like, uh, okay, I mean, maybe that's just how some orc gets his kicks, but we aren't really set up in, for a world where like, uh, it's not apparent that these races like can mix. And yeah, there's so much of like kind of this slapdash, what would be cool here thinking and not enough, you know, fleshing out of this world building. That it, What are the implications? Yeah, it, that it brings up all these other issues. And and one of the others that's that I find connected to this is the fact that it, it it's odd because as it's trying to show us that all oh, these characters have all these, you know, nasty stereotypes about orcs. And, you know, the, the main mm. character of Jacoby is such a, like, nice guy, saint of a character. Yeah. That... We, you know, you feel sympathy for him as he's just getting hated on by all these different people, including his partner, you know, the, the hero of the film, Will Smith. Mm-hmm. And as they're, you know, coming up with all these stereotypes and slurs and and mistreatment, there's a lot of it that I, like, I'm confused at how much these races know about each other and, like, what is yeah, real and yeah. what's a stereotype. Because you can go back to certain stereotypes that existed you know, th- that still exists today and were especially amped up in sort of more ignorant times of like, oh, you know, such and such race has horns or they have tails or they, they do this or they do that, which is that mixture of, you know, maybe malicious racism and also maybe just the fact that people really don't know, like they've just never encountered this group before. And so they're susceptible uh-huh. to rumors about how they might be. But Will Smith's character is like a streetwise cop who deals with, like, orc town, so to speak, and the orc gangs mm-hmm. and hoodlums. But he doesn't seem aware of things that his partner will tell him about, like, orcs having, like, a hypersensitive sense of smell. Yeah, yeah. And being able to, like, smell whether... I mean, in a big way. Like, he's able to identify people without seeing their faces just by their smell. And Will Smith seems to not even understand that, which... Yeah. Is odd if he's, you know, working with these people every day. And their strength, again, we saw an orc lift up a truck at one point, but that level of strength doesn't seem to ever really appear again from any of the orc characters. It's true. And it's it's interesting because as you're describing it, I'm realizing a lot of this film, they, they, they talk a lot about 2,000 years ago, the Dark Lord, one guy says, talking about the orcs, he says, once with the Dark Lord, always with the Dark Lord, which is <laughs> I got a chuckle out of me when he said that. But uh, <laughs> the, the interesting thing is they talk so much about this history, but there's such this – A, there's this historical chasm between this event 2,000 years ago and present day. And as you say, the way people act makes it seem like they haven't really been sharing this planet for very long. Yeah. Like they're – they're still strange to each other. It seems unaccommodating, and they don't really seem to have figured out an equilibrium. Which, again, if you're going to make a commentary about race, even in racist communities, there has been 
some semblance of an equilibrium, some semblance of these guys have lived together for a while now. You know, you get this, you get the sense that it's an actual place. This movie feels like instead of an event that happened 2000 years ago, it feels like there was some dimensional shift about five years ago that kind of combined present day earth with this fantasy realm and people are still acclimating. People are still adjusting to it because the, the, the sense of history, which in my mind, considering, you know, it's aping the fantasy genre. You think of other fantasy stories like Lord of the Rings and stuff. There is an implicit history to things. And this one just seems so devoid of it. And actually this reminds me, we're talking about how, you know, they throw in neat things like centaurs with no account of how it would actually fit into this world. I just realized we said nothing else has done this before. Harry Potter, Harry Potter's magic in a modern world. And, and that was one that, you know, constantly, constantly pay, you know, they, they paid attention to, okay, how do we separate the human world from the magic world, et cetera. And then more recently, of course, you have Onward, which I think is a better, a more close parallel to this movie, which, I mean, it did come out after, but I think Onward did a much better job of taking a fantasy world and saying, what would that world look like after it has seen as much advancement as our world has, rather than, hey, what if we, what if we took our world, but then also there's magic and and orcs and monsters and stuff. So it's... It's it, it's a lazier premise that requires a lot more legwork. With Onward, they don't have to bend over backwards at all. They're just like, no, this was a fantasy world, and now they, it's the modern version of that fantasy world. Yeah. They save yeah. themselves a lot of trouble. And I think one of the reasons why we're being so hard on this point in what some people could say is just supposed to be sort of an interesting premise to, to shut off your brain and kind of enjoy is because this is – I mean – we're talking about a genre, the fantasy genre, right? Where, I mean, there's a reason why, you know, nerds and geeks and so on love this genre. And that is the world building that starts mm-hmm. with something like Tolkien, where, you know, with these complex yeah. histories and rules. And that's why that's part of the pleasure of these fantasy novels for people who enjoy them or fantasy games like Dungeons and Dragons and so on is is all of the mm-hmm. complex legwork and and rule building and the and sitting back and kind of going you know what if it's similar to sci-fi in that way thinking yeah, exactly. uh, you know how how would this world be shaped what would what would things look like you know what would the parallels be and yeah. you know, not every film has to consider it to such great depths but I think with the way that it affects this story and what this story is also trying to say about race, that yes, in the end, Uh you have to say that it was sort of designed forward and a bit lazy and creates sort of a problematic mess to to pin the the plot on and the characters to work through. Yeah, yeah. And that's really just... I feel like they kind of invite it when you 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 make a story set in a fantasy world because any, anybody who's anybody knows that fantasy fans, sci-fi fans, as you say, every like, if there's one thing that is characteristic of every fan base, they want to have a world they can pour themselves into and get invested in and read lore about and yeah, yeah this yeah this movie invites it. It's it's like inviting guests over and your house isn't furnished, you know. <laughs> Right. And and that's the thing is I found myself wanting in this movie to I, – I read a couple reviews of people who enjoyed the film. And obviously, you know, with the number of watches that it's had, there there are many. You know, I mean, some of those are tuning yeah. in just 
to see what the splash is about. But, you know, presumably people enjoy this film. And part of what I was reading is, you know, just the they they like the the premise. You know, you get you get Will Smith being his charismatic character and it's just an interesting idea you know we get to see this cops and you know there's characters from maybe that are like characters in uh, games and books and so on that the people enjoy and yeah i yeah. i kept wanting to have more fun with it and i felt like mm-hmm. either kind of take it in a direction where you know and not that these are are discrete categories but either take it into a, a direction where it's more fun and more mm-hmm. silly and we're not expecting any realism or take it more in the direction of the the grit and the realism and give us this alternate universe that can make us think yeah. about our own or just enjoy this this different place and its and its implications yeah pick but a lane. I was never I was never really getting there you know there there are moments where it was kind of you know, where it was entertaining or I wanted to know, you know, I, I don't think I was ever bored in this film, which, you know, is an accomplishment in itself. But mm-hmm. a lot of what I was doing is just, unfortunately, sort of, you know, perplexed sort of train wreck watching as I'm just trying to figure yeah. out how this film is is going to resolve itself and where it's going and what's happening. To kind of branch off the world building a tad, I wanted to talk a little bit about the dialogue. The, the writing... It's funny because Max Landis, the screenwriter for this film, has kind of turned into, in my mind, he sort of turned into the M. Night Shyamalan of screenwriting. He has one kind of overnight success with Chronicle, and pretty much from that moment on, he is regarded and regards himself as kind of a big deal. But it, to, to me, it seems kind of like a one-trick pony because the the writing in this is so abysmally juvenile Towards the start, we have Jacoby heads to Ward's house, to Will Smith's character's house, and he sees his daughter, and he knows his daughter by name, and she's friendly with him. And there's there seems to be kind of a family connection to Jacoby. Like, he's he's not just some random orc. It seems like he has history with Ward's family. And then as they're going in the car, Jacoby is kind of, you know, he's making jokes about about how he doesn't think Ward's getting any, or, you know, they, 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 there seems to be this kind of bad boys banter going on between them. Yeah. And then there's this hard pivot into into Ward just saying, like, hey, shut up and leave me alone. Like, and it's, like, you can't tell if this is just really weird ribbing, if this is just a weird kind of, like, overly dark joke that he's making at, J- at Jacoby's expense. But then you get these moments where there seems to be genuine malice and hatred for him. But it, it, it it's so inconsistent. And there's a moment in, in the police station when Jacoby's just walking down the hall and all these other cops are laughing and, like, patting him and, like, ma- like they're all just, like, mocking him, like, oh, Jacoby, oh, just m- making fun of him. And then Jacoby turns around and he has a sign on his back that says, kick me, yeah. like they're in third grade. Yeah. Kick me. I feel, I feel like this was written as a commentary on raci- racism from a guy who has never thought about the real world <laughs> implications of racism. Because, like, look, the racism that, that, that black people and Jewish people and uh, his, like the, the, the racism that exists doesn't involve people. I mean, I'm sure that in third grade, the racism involves poking and prodding and going, ha ha ha, he looks different and slapping a kick me sign on their back. But. Grown-up racism is a lot darker and a lot – you know what grown-up racism looks like, and it's not this. It is not this. Yeah. And 
there are lots of moments where characters will they'll they'll sort of acknowledge Jacoby and and like you said, Jacoby is a saint in this movie. He's like a really sweet, good natured, just mm-hmm. like flawless character as far as I can tell. He does they, he doesn't really have any growing to do other than he wants to get blooded and accepted by his orc tribe. But um his character, I mean, I know that, you know, Max Landis would say, that's the point. He doesn't deserve the hatred. That's why it's racism. <laughs> but it's, again, uh, I was just going to point out, I have, a, I have a scene saved. I have a clip I'd like to share where uh, you get this, again, you get this sort of benign, very benign bullying of, of Jacoby, where it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, Jacoby's the orc on the forest. Yeah, we don't like him, but it is what it is. And then there's a moment about a little little past two-thirds of the way through the film where they first find the magic wand in question. And the whole police force is here, and Jacoby is outside with an elf who was, I believe, found with the wand, and he's trying to get her to calm down. And and meanwhile, Ward is in this little, this little banged-up house with his cop friends, all the cops we've seen from the movie so far, including the Sarge, including the uh, the Asian woman that you mentioned earlier. The, yeah, his we should boss. say the... That Ward is the Will Smith character. I think I failed to mention that. Oh right, right, yeah, w- yeah. Uh, Ward is Will Smith, and so he's he's in this room with these other cops, and they're basically, I mean, anybody who has seen a cop movie show anything that involves corruption has seen a scene like this executed. Dare I say more tactfully? <laughs> uh, I mean, heck, if you've seen Better Call Saul, Better Call Saul handles this phenomenally well. I'll, I'll let the scene speak for itself, but basically they're, they're trying to pressure Ward to go along with a little a little bit of good old-fashioned police corruption. And they mention, right before this clip starts, they mention that they are basically going to frame Jacoby for the wand and kill him. Well, they're not going to frame him. They're just going to kill him. They're going to kill Jacoby and take the wand for themselves to, yeah. to grant wishes for themselves and stuff. <laughs> and Ward is obviously, I mean, he hates, he hates Jacoby, but at this moment... He is very upset. It's not happening. No. No. Pollard, he's spinning. No, he's not spinning worth shit. It's fine, he's fine, he's fine. This is just calm down. Hey, hey, he's fine, he's got it. He's fine. Hey, 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 you gonna do Calm down. Calm down. Back the up. Back the up. Listen, listen. This is happening. This is happening for me. All right? It's okay. It's okay. There's no version of you walking out of here with life as you know it intact. This, we are taking the wand and the orc dies and you got a big decision right now. Either your little girl grows up without a daddy and Jacoby dies or just Jacoby dies and it is time to make a choice. You are him, Ward, you are him. Is tomorrow's LA Times gonna say one cop died here or two? And there it is. You just caught up to it. Everyone wins. Department gets rid of Jacoby. He dies a hero. Public's happy. This report writes itself. It's a perfect storm, bro. It's a perfect storm. Okay, so... So you get the whole gang, including his boss, including his Sarge. They're all just gathered around. Come on, Ward, you were him, man. What's it gonna be? And again, I think this is a very, very childish version of a scene that we've seen hundreds of times. 
So uh, we don't see what his answer is, but we do see him go outside and he starts he starts to yell at Jacoby and get mad at him for lying about an event that happens earlier in the story. It's so inconsequential. I'm not even gonna get, I'm not even going to get into it. But he's out there arguing with Jacoby, and meanwhile we cut back to the cops uh, who are still talking, and we get this little this little nugget of joy. So what's the real plan? Two cops died tonight. <laughs> what about the elf? I'll kill her. You good? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I just love... I love the fact that they spend all this time trying to win him over and everything, and then the minute that he... <laughs> the minute he's out, they're like, so so we're really going to kill him, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to kill him. <laughs> I also love that line... That line is much like the line we got from Happy Anderson earlier, where he's like, want to break it down again for me, boss? I like how she just turns and says, so what's the real plan? <laughs> like, not even any subtlety to bring it in. Just uh... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, not to mention, she's the Sarge. Why is she kowtowing to this this random lackey with a mustache? Like, it's... I, I just... I found that scene so hilarious, because... Once again, this feels like a cop movie written by a guy who has not studied anything about police corruption, about the life of an average police officer at all. It's a story about racism from a guy who clearly must have grown up in an all-white neighborhood and didn't meet a black person until he was like 23 or something. It's it's just it's trying to be this biting gritty social commentary, but it seems like what what world are you adapting right now? This is it's uh, but yeah, just the fact that everybody turns on a dime and it turns hostile very quick. Uh, yeah. Bodies start dropping real fast after this scene. But I just, I could never pin down the relationship that Ward has with Jacoby. Because, I mean, towards the end of the film, Jacoby gets blooded, which is basically just orcs cutting their hands and raising their fists to honor you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's the whole thing. Uh, it's sort of a coming of age, he's done his brave act thing. Yeah, it's his walkabout. And then after that, Ward just says, I still don't like you, or something like... <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, <laughs> I love that because, I mean, it's at the end of the film and they still have to be like, ah, we're just, oh, we're just palling around you and me, just a little, what's a little ribbing between buddies? But that's how he was at the start of the film, except then he hated him, and now he likes him, but he still says the same stuff. And it yeah. seems completely irrelevant to him. He gets blooded by orcs, this honorable moment, and then it's like, his partner's just like, I still don't like you. It's like, this has nothing to do with you liking me. I just got blooded by my tribe, bro. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, it's it's perplexing. And, and, and it's going to be interesting, I think, to compare to our next film, these specific points we're bringing up mm-hmm. about the relationship between these these two police officers and what racism looks like. Uh, you're mm-hmm. talking about the dialogue. I First off, I agree completely about the perplexing nature of – you know, when you when it starts out, Ward and Jacoby, yeah, they seem like, you know, Ward doesn't like him. And I don't have a problem accepting that at the beginning. Like, okay, like he doesn't really like him. But you can kind of see like, oh, but he's, you know, he's he's decent to him. Like his daughter says something about like, oh, orcs are bad. And he's like, no, honey, like orcs aren't bad. They're just different. You know, and you're like, okay, well, all right. And then they, they get in the car and yeah, they, they seem to be like ribbing each other. And, you know, it seems like you get the... The idea that, you know, Will Smith is playing one of his, like, 
sort of you know he's he's cocky he's a bit of a bastard but you know yeah, he's, he's just channeling know. bad boys yeah he's, he's a good guy at the, you know at heart and then yeah and, and there's like this kind of like funny ribbing between the two of them and at the beginning I, I think you know in retrospect that we're supposed to take it as Jacoby's sort of ignorance and naivete but at the beginning it seems like he's messing with him you know, yeah. when he's like making the jokes about like, oh, you just need to get laid or something. Yeah. You know, you're like, oh, okay. And I, that's what I thought at the beginning. Like, oh, they're just ribbing each other like, you know, like like cops do. I've seen movies. <laughs> and, and and you're like, okay. But yeah, th- he gets like – Will Smith gets really vicious later. Yeah. You know, he says some – so you know, I mean, he's calling him, you know, a pig face He's yelling and screaming and swearing at him, and he just—it's baffling. Like you really don't know. Does he hate this guy? And he's going to stop just short of killing because that's his line. (laughs) Yeah. Or does he, you know, just sort of think he's a bit annoying and wishes he didn't have to deal with this situation? And he oscillates so sharply between those two points that. It makes him a baffling character. Yeah, it really does. The, this movie is all over the place. Um, it's interesting because going back to the popularity it's had on on Netflix, I've spoken with a few friends who were really into this movie when it came out. They seem to react in a way that... You, I think people were thirsty when this movie came out. I think people wanted yeah. an urban fantasy story. Like it scratched the, the premise scratched a lot of itches and you got people who, I mean, something that comes to mind recently is the Sonic the Hedgehog movie where you get fans who really want a specific kind of thing. And then the movie comes out and it's not that great, but people are saying, ah, good enough. It'll do. Uh, you know, I, I have friends who said, you know, the world building could have been a little bit better, but I want, I'm so excited to see more of what happens in this world. And I'm like, just picture what's happening today, but plus there's an orc there. I, I agree. And part in part because I was ready for it to, you know, I knew that there was a bit of controversy about this. I mean, that it was divisive. Yeah. But yeah. I really I hadn't even seen a trailer for this film when I watched it. You know, I knew what it was when you mentioned it. I was like, oh, yeah, that's the one that something like fantasy meets urban, you know. And uh, I tuned in and as it got going and I saw what what was, you know, what the setup was, I was ready for it to, you know, I wanted, I I, I was, I was willing. I was like, okay, yeah, take me. Like, I want to see what you, what you can do with this. Like, this is a scene that, you know, anyone who's like read a fantasy novel, you know, (laughs) most, most boys who had even like a mildly nerdy phase during adolescence probably thought like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if like, you know. What if there were like orcs and elves, you know, here, like in the city? And what, what would that be like? Yeah. And so everybody's kind of wanting that story or a lot of people are anyway. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're right. Like people are are ready for it to, to be fun. And, you know, clearly it was for some people. Yeah. There's actually – I found a, there was a quote from the Netflix CEO, Reed Hastings, when the film got critically panned. He said, the critics are pretty disconnected from the mass appeal. They are an important part of the artistic process, but are pretty disconnected from the commercial prospects of a film. If people are watching this movie and loving it, that's the measurement of success. And it makes me think about the recent, well, not recent anymore, but that change Netflix made from the star rating to the thumbs up or the thumbs down. 
which I think a lot of people, they don't abuse, but they use it with, with the knowledge of how it works, which is if you thumbs up something, you want to see more like that. If you thumbs down it, you want to see less like yeah. that. And it's hard because you see a terrible movie like like Bright. Sorry to anybody who liked it. I, I was not a fan. But uh, you see a movie like Bright and you think, I would like to see more urban fantasy type stuff. I'd like to see more fantasy stories. Thumbs up. But that doesn't mean you liked it. It just means that yeah. your your appetite has been stirred. This is a uh, you know this is you're bringing up kind of a, a side note maybe, but I really have a problem with that sort of because yeah, it induces. It's like uh, you know we're not going to get into this, but it's like uh, <laughs> the voting we have here in America. Yes, when you have just these two options essentially you you're forced into starting to think strategically yeah and like i said we're not gonna go there but just strictly with netflix i i do the same thing like i go i watch something and i think wow this should have been for me you know that's why i tuned in for mm-hmm. what, whatever we're talking about you know some movie or series or whatever that i'll pop on and you know i do so because it intrigued me on some level and so i watch and maybe something goes wrong. Like I liked the story, but the execution was bad, or there was uh, there was a really problematic element to it that I didn't like, or or the level of the um, you know uh, violence wasn't hitting my mood right then, or it was something. Yeah. And so I don't like it. And I want to say, you know, I want to vote that I don't like it and adjust the algorithm. But then I know that if I downvote it for Netflix, you know, I don't know how sophisticated their algorithm is, but. You know, essentially, it's going to be like, oh, if I'm downvoting, you know, this uh, British, you know, crime TV show, it's going to show me fewer British crime TV shows, and it's going to try and show me something else. Exactly. But I want British crime TV shows. I just don't want that one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the the star rating gives you more nuance, and and maybe that that polarization is what we're looking at with something like Bright. We know, you know, which gets at the heart of one of the aspects of this show is. What does the world of streaming look like? How does that shape movies? You know, yeah. what does that give us? You know, I mean, number one is, and I, this movie wasn't designed with Netflix in mind. Netflix, you know, bought it after it was made mm-hmm. or, or in somewhere in the process, there was a bidding war Yeah, yeah. and it was picked out. But, you know, one of the things that Netflix can do, right, is it can get around a lot of the, the rating issues that have ruled the day. And I'm talking now about content ratings, PG-13, R, et cetera, mm-hmm. that have ruled the day with other films. Because when you're depending on a theatrical release for the film to see success or not, uh, the rating becomes extremely important because certain theaters aren't going to let people in you know, if they're under 17 or whatever and it's an R-rated film. And in this film in particular – skipping to our bit at the end about who this film is for, I I feel like, to me, this movie feels, and this is going to put me in a snobbish category, but, you know, I came to this film with open arms. It rejected me. (laughs) Um, So, to me, this movie plays out like a movie that it's for adolescents who are wanting to enjoy the transgression of watching something they aren't supposed to watch. That's what this movie feels like for me. Yes. Like yes. The, they're already interested. They're already interested because of the premise, you know, orcs and, you know, so these teenage boys are going like, yeah, I'll, oh, I, I'm interested. I want it. Will Smith, it, this looks cool. And then they get into it and the kind of violence, the kind of sex, the kind of stereotypes, the kind of message all seems to me juvenile and yet R-rated. 
Yeah. So it feels like something which is made just for that, for somebody who wants to like, ooh, like, you know, yeah. mom and dad aren't around. I'm going to I'm gonna pop this one on and watch it. And it's going to give them what they want. You know, the cool premise, not going to dive too deep into themes, you know, that is some, maybe it appeals to that juvenile sensibility. But it's also going to have, you know, some, some blood and guns and yeah, yeah. boobs and all that stuff. <laughs> yeah, this definitely has a back shelf blockbuster rental written all over it for those kids who sneak in and they're looking <laughs> at the back of the case. Oh, yeah, let's get this one. Yeah, it's a I, I think that's a really good summation of it. I mean, that yeah, clearly there was an audience for this as it has done remarkably well, apparently, and it got itself a sequel. Clearly, we were not the target audience, I suppose, although we're both fans of, of fantasy. I assume, you know, we both like Will Smith and yeah. Joel Edgerton. Like, there's a lot of the a yeah. lot of the ingredients are there. It's to me, this movie's kind of like uh, like Deadpool without the self-awareness. You know, it's like like you say, this feels like a, like a movie made for the Austin Powers crowd. This feels like the, you know, yeah. a, a PG-13, like pushing the envelope, but since it's Netflix, they can push the envelope well into an entirely new envelope. They, they they go nuts with it, but without the restraint and the tact that would make it any of it meaningful. But yeah, like you, I think, yeah, adolescents, kids, teenagers who want to get away with getting a little bit more blood, a few more cussies, a couple more boobs than they're probably used to, uh, <laughs> then they'll probably, they'll probably be very happy with this. If you if you if you prefer your stories a bit more measured, um, if you like your fantasy a bit more thought out, you, you you may come away a bit frustrated. If you're like me and you derive some sort of masochistic pleasure from watching bad movies, it can be a heck of a ride. I actually thoroughly enjoyed myself watching it, but what this makes it even more complicated for me when I'm giving the thumbs up or the thumbs down because I'm like I want more fantasy, so thumbs up. But this was a terrible movie, so thumbs down. But I really enjoyed myself, so thumbs up. But it was a really terrible movie, so thumbs down. I think this this movie was probably the first one that made me think, if Netflix is going to get rid of the star rating altogether, at the very least, they should give us two ratings to give. A thumbs up or down for the premise, and a thumbs up or down for the execution. So that way you can say, I want more of this, but not like this. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a film which clearly invites a more nuanced rating system because, yeah, for me, there is that element of I'm enjoying watching this because it's so ridiculous kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I lose some of that because there's some of the stuff that gets a little bit too <laughs> problematic for me in certain areas where I'm like, yeah, I just, I just don't even want it. This isn't this movie isn't making it worth going through some of these things. Right. And but, you know, clearly there's also like we keep saying, this premise, which is, you know, which is interesting and which is catching on for a lot of people. So yeah. I don't know where to go with it or who's going to dive in. You know, I, I just, I'll say quickly that I haven't seen any of the director David Ayer's, Ayer's films. You haven't seen Suicide Squad, Bo? I, well, so there's Suicide Squad, right? Which seems in keeping with this. But yeah. I also know that he did like Hard Times and End of Watch, which I haven't seen them yet, but I know that they were critically well-received yeah. and dealt with crime and police in, I would assume, a more uh, nuanced and sophisticated way. And obviously those are, you know, from what I understand, 
uh, more, you know, adult oriented films rather than, you know, the more sort of juvenile fun premise of something like uh, Bright or Suicide Squad. Yeah. By the way, it's a testament to just how convoluted the uh, the plot of Bright can be that we haven't even got. <laughs> we didn't even go through or bother to mention why it's called Bright or what that means or <laughs> any of that. <laughs> because you know, it really doesn't matter, yeah. especially with some reveals toward the end of the film. It, it really doesn't matter. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. There we are. That's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you're if if after all this, you guys, if if our listeners still want to see Bright, by all means, please go watch it. Comment on. Let us know what you thought. If you saw more to it than we did, it's. Yeah, we really didn't get into much of the second half, which is actually great. We managed to keep this one spoiler free. Of all the movies that we've reviewed, yeah, this true. is probably the one yeah. least worthy of your attention. But we were keeping it nice and fresh for you, so you can you can go in and be surprised. <laughs> but yeah, it's like you say, the plot is as convoluted as it is inconsequential. By the end of the movie, you're both not sure what happens, what what has happened, and you're also not sure that any of it actually mattered. So. <laughs> Good times. It was a good movie. Uh, so, uh, you assigned me a movie, Bo, in response to this. I did, yeah. In response to this, I watched this movie, I gave it a think, and I, I hit back with the Criterion film In the Heat of the Night from 1967. Now, I'll, I'll say one thing. This is this movie's no bright. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's... Uh, I, I very much enjoyed my time with Heat of the Night. So to kind of break it down a little bit, much like much like Bright, The Heat of the Night is a movie about crime and racism. And interestingly enough, it's interesting because Bright was made in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, that's been going on for a couple of years and yeah. Bright just came out a year, you know, two years ago, maybe, I think. So it had plenty of raw, fresh content to tap into, which... I think we would both agree, I feel like it barely tapped into most of that. Yep. Whereas in The Heat of the Night, that came out in the midst of the civil rights movement. That movie came out, I believe, three years after the Civil Rights Act was passed in 64. And there are, I mean, in the year that it's coming out, there are, you know, there are race riots. The Mm -hmm. Supreme Court is just considering interracial marriage and whether it's constitutional. That's right. All that. So, yeah, very much a movie in, in its moment. It is. And it's, it's also interesting, looking back, uh, as I was looking up stuff on it, the actor who plays the main protagonist, Sidney Poirier, Bo? Sidney Poirier? Does that sound right? It's either Poirier or Poitier. <laughs> so, I'm going to assume it's Poirier. Poitier is what people usually say. Poitier? Gosh. Yeah. I went too French. <laughs> uh he was hesitant to travel south of the Mason-Dixon line to film the movie because of how volatile things were in the south at that time. And by the way, this is him as he's one of the biggest box office draws. This is the height of his career right now. Oh, in yeah. 1967. So he's a big name. He's a big star. Was this before or after Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Uh, I don't actually know. But I know that I do know that he is a box office draw right now and a, a big name. In the movies. Yeah, which is saying something that even with all that clout, he still was a bit hesitant to film in the South. So basically, this this was a movie that came out in volatile times. And as opposed to Bright, which 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 tried to hammer in a nail with a jackhammer, 
this movie, I think, very deftly handles the social circumstances that it's addressing. So to kind of just break down the plot pretty quick here. So a wealthy industrialist named Philip Colbert is found dead in the streets of a town called Sparta, Mississippi. Uh, He's found by some cop just working the beat. And the officer who found him, Sam Wood, once once they you know survey the crime scene, the first thing he does is arrest the first black guy he finds at a train station, <laughs> who is our yeah. protagonist, uh, Virgil Tibbs. So he <laughs> he finds Virgil Tibbs at the train station, and he he basically brings him in on the uh, on the crime of having a bit too much money in his wallet, a suspicious amount of mm-hmm. of prosperity. So he brings him into the police station. Yeah, because the body was the body was robbed. That's right. That's right. The body was robbed. And uh, so he, since he had a wallet with a bit of money in it, he, they, that was enough for, for Wood to bring him in. And so while he's in the police station, he faces, to me, an aggravating amount of prejudice and condescension from pretty much everybody at the station. And he has the patience of a saint. He, he basically just endures and maintains he, – he, he remains statuesque through the entire process. The, the chief, Gillespie – accuses him of committing the murder like he, he excuses wood to leave the room and then immediately is like so what'd you use to kill him you know what, what, what did you do and he just kind of immediately just assumes and infers and 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 tries to to pin him for it and uh over a very quick period of of interrogation virgil drops the mother of all bombshells he's a cop he's a cop too so gillespie just looks like a giant idiot and it's the moment of Gillespie kind of it slowly dawns on him of ah ah as he sits back down in his chair. <laughs> so of course he verifies. He calls Virgil's boss up in Philadelphia, his, his police chief, and we never actually hear the chief's voice. But the phone gets passed back and forth between Gillespie and Tibbs until it comes to it, it comes out that the chief wants Tibbs to stay in Sparta in this, this little podunk town and help them solve this murder because he's the best they got. He's, he's the best homicide detective that they have had. And Gillespie doesn't want him here. Virgil uh, Tibbs doesn't want to be here. It's funny because you see a lot of buddy cop movies that start out like bright where it's like, listen, pal, I don't like you. You don't like me. So just stay out of my way and, you know, let me do things my way. I'm the fast and loose one. You're the, you're the, the rigid veteran, you know, we're going to, we're going to do things my way or the highway. And it's, there's <laughs> so, so much room for cliche. And I know that at the, you know, in 67, I'm sure it wasn't as cliche as it is now, but once again, I guess degradation over time as more people kind of imitate what this movie pulled off so masterfully because the treatment of Gillespie, uh, the, the way that Gillespie treats Tibbs, my first thought is there's no way these two are working together. There, there's, you know, Tibbs would not, he would not enjoy it and Gillespie would not stand for it given his extremely racist views. But, uh, Basically, they, they agree to work together, and what follows is probably the most nuanced and fascinating take on buddy cops with dramatic differences that I've ever seen. Over the course of the movie, uh, Gillespie slowly comes to understand Tibbs. He witnesses firsthand the prejudice that Tibbs faces, even as an officer of the law. He has to save him from an angry mob at, some, at, at one point. It's slowly, gradually... Uh, Gillespie comes around and starts to he starts to recognize the problem and tries to take efforts to to push back against it and, and try and make it better. 
by the end of the film, the, the murder mystery itself actually has a pretty standard by the numbers conclusion. I, I, I would say to me, it wasn't disappointing, just not particularly satisfying. Uh, but by the time that I got to that point, I was so engaged in Tibbs' experience and Gillespie's arc from racist buffoon to wizened ally that I, I don't think any conclusion could have topped the buildup. To, to me, this movie was absolutely more about the journey than the destination. The murder mystery was kind of, to me, it was a framing device through which we could see a really cool character study between Tibbs and Gillespie. Uh, so that's that's basically the movie in a nutshell. They're trying to solve this murder and they're trying to reconcile their differences. And, and Tibbs is trying to solve a murder in a town that clearly does not like him. Yeah. And I'll just say, you know, it's, it's a, that's a good summary. Um, I'm just going to just a quick note on the summary. Huh. Uh, you missed a you missed a word oh. that Amazon Prime put in their summary of the film. Oh yeah, what they say? <laughs> which I pulled it up, and I was slightly confused for a moment because this movie um, improbably has a spinoff TV show. Oh yeah, I almost watched the TV show on accident when I was trying to find it. Yeah, yeah, that's a you know. Uh, listener beware if you look up this film there is a it, it's sort of strange you type it in and you get a few options under in the heat of the night anyways i was going through and i was looking and i was like okay wait this is the film right um which i've seen before but i wanted to double check and i was reading the description that they put and it says you know racist cop has to da 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 da, da in a steamy southern town <laughs> and it's just a, you know, just a silly side note, but I was like, steamy, what? Steamy. And I read the letterboxed plot and it says the exact same thing, except it says in a racist Southern town. It's like steamy. I was like, that makes it sound like, you know, I, I mean, are they, are, are they, is it literal? Like, this town is you know, it's hot and clammy. There's literal steam. It is or humid are they, in the South. Are they saying what, yeah, are they saying what we typically think of as steamy? And I was like. You know, I mean, there is an element of sex to some of the criminal activity that happens in the town, but it's uh-huh. not a, it's not a steamy town. <laughs> this is not an that, erotic thriller. You know. <laughs> <laughs> a steamy southern town. Yeah. In a steamy southern town. That's like calling Ward's character in Bright hard-boiled, you know? It's like... Yeah, exactly. Just dipping into your vocabulary like a, bucket here. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I like to imagine that Amazon has, like, a quota to get people to watch, you know, that the people writing the synopsis, they have to use so many words from category A, so many from category B. And one of those categories has words like, you know, steamy or gritty, and, you know, they have to... They have to choose. And someone, you know, was a little lazy that day. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, there. I guess to be fair, it does start out with a moment of sort of that's, that's sort of eerie and erotic. Yeah. Like we open on this quiet southern town and the way this film is shot and designed, you, you get I, – I think you get a feel of – what this place is like. Yeah. It's, you know, sort of in the, the, the cliche of like the town is a character in itself. The setting is a character. You know, the the setting right. is very important here, you know, considering the time period and that we're in the deep south and, you know, the race relations, which are obviously central to the film. Mm-hmm. But we, yeah, we open, right, with that beat cop going along and he's, he's going to discover the dead body. But before he does that, perplexingly to... Those of you know to first time viewers, he he pulls up and just sort of watches 
this attractive young woman um, moving around in her house with the lights on, windows open, in the dark, completely nude. Yeah. And he's idled in front of this house, clearly, you know, expecting that he's going to see this. And she just sort of sidles up to the window and looks at him as she, you know, takes a swig of a soda pop or something and just kind of watches him and he watches her and then he drives off. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the beginning, we're just sort of baffled, like, what what was that about? And then, you know, he goes on to discover a body. And we don't even come back to that girl or that situation for a, quite a while. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't come into play until two-thirds later or so. Yeah. But it, do, it does incorporate. It does make sense. It isn't just some random gratuitous atmosphere scene. <laughs> but, yeah, so I guess maybe one thing to – to get right into because you're right. Although this does, and, and I do, I I appreciate films that can mix nuance and art and social commentary with genre. Yeah, I, I think genre films that can pull that off are among some of the most important films that we get because, you know, not only are they entertaining and Mm well-crafted and, you know, therefore desirable to an audience, but we also get, you know, the artistry and the message and whatever else along with it. And I think it's, you know, an apt comparison like we were talking about with Bright because Bright is also a genre film, which is trying to add commentary, um, you know, and of course, you know, I mean, the comparison is apt, like we say, also unfair, <laughs> you know, I mean, In the Heat <laughs> of the Night is a, is a classic, you know, Oscar winning film. Yeah, yeah. And we're comparing it with, you know, a random popular <laughs> movie, but Point being that the characters are central to what's happening in this mm-hmm. film, uh, perhaps the most important part of the film. So maybe let's just let's talk about those characters. Yeah, maybe if we could, be, because we we're going to have so much to say. I think about Virgil and Gillespie, Tibbs mm-hmm. and Gillespie, Gillespie. That um, let's talk about some of the other characters for a moment. Yeah, yeah. What did you think about the? The other law enforcement officers the, in this film, yeah, and the way that they were portrayed. I think that the the writing and the acting, both from the cops, really helped to sell the predicament that Tibbs is in in this town. In that, the police force is largely, uh, if I had to use two words off the top of my head to describe them, incompetent and racist. Yeah, they they they're very. <laughs> it's very much kind of a podunk operation they seem pretty sloppy and i i think that the acting is great i thought especially wood the guy who initially arrests tibbs discovers the body peeps at the girl that that cop does a great job i think playing kind of an inept corrupt but not necessarily evil guy yeah he's sort of like a a twisted barney fife yeah yeah he's a twisted barney fife that's a great way to yeah, dark, dark Barney Fife, the 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 negative world Barney Fife. <laughs> but one thing that I think is interesting is although none of them comes off looking, you know, especially competent or intelligent, you also get the idea that there are levels to these characters, and that they're all kind of playing and getting by and doing what they, you know, they're they're comfortable in their jobs, and like all of us, there's you know, a big part of them that just wants to be comfortable in their job. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, I'm thinking of moments like when Gillespie, the, the you know, the, the chief of police, 
the other main character, or perhaps the main character, depending on how you look at it. Mm -hmm. He is also a fairly new resident in this town. You know, that's right. Yeah, uh, he's not new to the South. You know, he's a part of the culture of the South, but to this town in particular, he is kind of an outsider as well. Mm -hmm. And there are moments where, you know, he gets angry at um, one of the cops because the, the door hasn't been fixed in the in the station. <laughs> yeah. The other cop is like, oh, you know, you know that, that you're sorry, you're, you're thinking of my brother. Like because he says, why didn't you fix this door? I told you to fix this door. He said, no, no, no. You're thinking of my brother. He was the one who was supposed to fix it. And he goes, oh, well, you know, see that he does. And he storms out. And then the other cops all just kind of look at each other and then sort of bust up laughing. <laughs> and you just get to see this level of. You know, they are kind of bumbling and a little bit doofish. Yeah. Sometimes it may start to to spill over the top a little bit, but you can see that it's reined in and that they're all kind of, a lot of them are kind of playing an act and it's all, there's a lot of, there's a lot of masculine posturing in this film. There there's is. There's a lot of, you know, jostling to be top dog kind of play going on. And you can see that some of these people, some of these men who are not in a position to be top dog are sort of using different wiles to keep from being bitten uh-huh. by by the top dogs. And so I think that's something that's going on in this in this movie as well. And yeah. the way that plays in with the racial issues is I think interesting mm-hmm. also. Yeah, a lot of people taking cues and stuff. That that was actually going to say uh one of my one of my favorite early moments in the movie I, I really liked how the, how this movie. It, it's a very it's a very serious film, but it it's it's not without moments of levity. Like you said, the bit with the door. Uh, there's also a moment when he first sits Virgil down, when Gillespie sits Virgil down in his office to interrogate him the first time, and he complains. I think was it about the AC. There's a little AC unit, and he says like, "It's like the, what, yeah. What was the last time somebody oiled this thing? Like this the, this thing is like it, it's it's rusting. Like fix it." And then the cop says, "Oh yeah, sure thing, boss." And he leaves. And then while he's talking to Virgil and things get a bit more tense, the guy, the same cop tries to come back in and he says, not now, damn it. And we see that cop and he's holding a little oil can. <laughs> like he was just coming back to oil yeah. the AC. And it's it's a kind of a blink and you miss it little gag. But it's it's all very much within the context of the scene and within the, the world of the movie. So nothing ever, none of the humor ever feels out of place. It all kind of very organic. No. Uh, the, uh, and there are, you know, it's definitely, like you say, not, it's, it's not a comedy, but there were a couple of good moments. One of those moments is, um, I think, when they're chasing their first suspect, you know, who, not Tibbs, but this, this guy who is running from the scene of the crime Mm-hmm. And they're they're going after him, and there's this big chase. You know, he's the, with they've got you've got the deputies running around with hounds, and they're going through the the woods, and they're jumping in past trains and all this stuff to try and catch this guy as he's running. And eventually, he gets to this overpass, and he's running, 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 and the cops are like, "We're losing him," and they tune into Gillespie, who's just sitting idly in his car, kind of going. Yeah, don't don't worry about it. I got him. And then we get this nice like telephoto shot of him just like riding along, chomping on his gum as he all as he always is. And then you pull back to see that he is literally driving on the heels of that character. Which I thought was <laughs> yeah. a, it was a pretty good pretty good laugh. That was a good he's, shot. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, so th- those are you know those are the police characters. A couple of the characters that I want to touch on to to set the the tone and a, and a scene that I think is interesting to talk about is so the the industrialist who comes in to set up the town and whose body we find right at the beginning of the film, the murder mm-hmm. victim. We meet his his wife. Yeah, that's a really interesting. Everything to do with her, I think, is is very interesting, and she does a great job. And I want to talk about her in just a yeah. moment, but. So she's in there and Tibbs comes back. This is a way, you know, a bit into the film and Tibbs is now reluctantly working with the police through a series of things that have happened. And so he's now working with the police in this town, you know, despite neither party wanting that to happen. Mm-hmm. And he gets back and the, and somebody tells him like, oh, the, you know, the widow's in there and she hasn't even been told yet. And so Tibbs realizes that, you know, she's just someone needs to go and and put her out of that suspense. She's just she knows that something's wrong. She doesn't even know her husband's dead. She's been sitting in there for like an hour waiting for someone to come tell her. Yeah. So he goes in, he tells her and there's a a great scene, I think, as we see her just sort of deal with the the denial and the, the shock of hearing what's happened to her husband. And it's. It was a scene that they did a lot of improv in, really? and it's so charged. I don't know if you. I mean, I'm sure you recall this moment. Tibbs like sticks his hand out, you know, perhaps to like kind of comfort her, like uh, yeah, grab her shoulder or maybe invite her to a seat, and she just she flinches. Yeah, and, yeah, and they both sort of pull back, and there's this this moment, and you can't help but think about the you know the time period and the idea in the implications of a black person touching a white person but both of these characters are cosmopolitan characters and and as it turns out you know she she isn't racist mm-hmm. she is sort of shocked by the racism in this town to which she is also an outsider yeah. and she is a big part of the reason why Tibbs continues to work with this with this uh police uh Team. Police team. Coming soon on NBC. Police team. (laughs) Uh, Because she's basically threatens that she's, you know, if this guy who she sees instantly is one of the, you know, is the competent cop. uh, I don't think we've mentioned that he's a homicide expert. Right. Yeah. And. So she insists that, you know, if if her husband's money is going to stay in this town, that he be on the case. And so that's part of the influence. But anyway, this scene happens. And so she's one of the interesting characters, I think, in her insistence, in the way that she deals with her shock, in the still the amount of charge that exists between the two of them and touch there. And I just want to briefly mention that Mm -hmm. she is, she uh, is no stranger to prejudice herself. She is Lee Grant, the actress, Mm. who got an Oscar nomination Years over a decade before that, oh, when she was a young twenty-something in the movie Detective Story, and then was blacklisted for twelve years because uh, her husband was a communist screenwriter. Oh, really? So for twelve years, arguably, for you know, considering the way that Hollywood works, what could have been her best twelve years from twenty-four to uh, you know into her thirties. Jeez, she was blacklisted. Yeah. But this touch, this the, the touch that sort of happens between them where he reaches out and she flinches, brings up something that I thought was interesting throughout this film. And that's the, the tactile nature of this movie and the way that it's shot. 
the emphasis on texture and sweat and touching. And part of that may be just because of the strange way that, you know, from what we watch on like, you know, some silly show like CSI now or something. Mm -hmm. And the way that we're used to seeing forensic scientists come in and investigate a murder, which is, you know, a lot of gloves and uh, checking for like DNA. And Tibbs, who is an expert in homicide, is a very hands-on expert. Yeah. I mean, he is... He is all over that corpse and the suspects, you know, he's touching them, holding them. And and again, I don't think it can be emphasized enough that at the time period, there are people for whom that is going to really rub the wrong way. It it does some of the characters in the film and also audience members to see, you know, to see these black hands essentially, you know, groping, handling white people. Yeah. I mean, he's as he's inspecting like the body's fingernails, feeling, you know, the neck to check for, you know, various breaks and signs. Basically just investigating, trying to determine time of death. Yeah. And yeah, there's, but there's something about this entire film that, and maybe, you know, maybe maybe that's where the steamy is coming in. (laughs) There is sort of this, I don't know, it's something, yeah, very, very tactile, very hands-on. Lots of emphasis on touch and who's touching yeah. whom and when that that plays in and incorporates into the film. And also adds this level of – because none of it is – like it, there's something slightly uncomfortable about all of it. Yeah. You know, the way he's kind of handling the body or touch – you know, and even if it's just that the characters are uncomfortable. Like one of the suspects being handled by – you know, you can tell that – Part of the issue that he's ha- having is not that he's been not that he's a handcuffed suspect being handled by a cop, but that the cop is black. Right, right. Bothers him. And then, I, I mean, I, I suppose this is just as good a moment as any to jump into what is perhaps the most, or one of at least the two most famous moments of this film. Uh, yeah. So the first is probably. The line where you know, the famous line. I've got the clip for that actually. Oh, you're got the well. Let's do it. Yeah. So this was uh, well. We'll play this real quick just to kind of get it out of the way here because this was this was a scene that I had heard many times and I never knew what it was from until watching this film. So for anybody who needs the closure that I got from this, this is a really famous line given by Sidney Poitier. Poitier. Poirier. Poitier. Poitier. Uh, this is a, a really famous line uttered by him. Most of the context you need is here uh, is included in the clip. Basically, they're just they're just speaking with uh, Colbert's wife, and they've got a suspect who uh, they're pretty convinced is the guy. It, it's it's the guy from the scene who was trying to escape on the overpass. Uh, Virgil Tibbs he determines that the assailant was left-handed. Uh, based on the way that the based on the way that Colbert was struck in the head, and so because of that, he doesn't think that the guy they've captured is their guy. So that's the context for this scene. I want you to take Mrs. Colbert over to the funeral parlor, and would you run Virgil down a depot? Uh, the Virg here, Chief. He thinks that Harvey's innocent. Well, I'll be damned. Could I talk to you about it in private? No, you can't talk to me about it in privacy because I got Kovac's wallet right here in my hand. We took it from Harvey Overs. You don't think he gave it to him, do you? I don't know, but Overs could have come along after the crime, found it, picked it up. I don't know. That's what the boy said he did. Well, I'm sorry, man, but I say different. 
Well, when I examined the deceased, it was obvious that the fatal blow was struck from an angle of 17 degrees from the right, which makes it almost certain the person who did it is right-handed. So what? Old Harv's left-handed, Chief. Everybody in town knows that. Yeah, uh, that's what we figured out, Chief. Uh, Harvey's a lefty, uh-huh. Well, you're pretty sure of yourself, ain't you, Virgil? Virgil, that's a funny name for a nigger boy that comes from Philadelphia. What do they call you up there? They call me Mr. Tibbs. Mr. Tibbs! Well, Mr. Wood, take Mr. Tibbs! Take him down to the depot, and I mean boy like now! Yeah, that's a great scene. Also, I'm realizing I got it wrong. He was struck with a right-handed blow, and Harve was left-handed. I got the hands wrong. But, uh, yeah, it's a... I always wondered what the context was for that line, but here it's so powerful the way it's delivered. After after putting up with, you know, half a movie's worth of crap from these cops, he says, what do they call you up there? They call me Mr. Tibbs. They know how to respect a person. And it was, yeah, it was an amazing line. And the acting from the ancillary cops, from the, the two... The two lackeys, I think, is really great in that scene because they're almost amused by this exchange. You know, you can kind of see them whistling yeah. and chuckling as it's as it's as it's carrying on. But yeah, it's a it's a, it's a great scene, I think. And yeah, like like I say, probably the most memorable scene. Well, yeah, the, the most famous scene from the film. Uh, the the second most mm. is what I was going to to talk about here, continuing on the oh yeah, the yeah. aspect of touch, and that is the scene where Tibbs goes to interrogate Indicott. Ah, and Indicott. Indicott is basically sort of a holdover from, you know, the pre-Civil War era South. Yeah. He is a, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a slave owner in everything, but, you know, the technical aspect of it. He's a rich, wealthy white man uh you know cotton plantation. well-mannered in a you know yeah big plantation he's got a bunch of black people working for him as you know picking cotton and and so on and you know i'm sure he's paying them you know as he legally is required to do but mm-hmm. obviously you know these people are subservient to him and he's a he's a big name he's you know he's a big big noise in the town and there is suspicion that because he's the other big money in the town that maybe he resents this new money coming in and therefore could have played a part in the killing. Mm-hmm. And so they go up to investigate. It's a charged situation. You know, the fact that there is a, you know, colored policeman in the town is already pressing a lot of buttons. And now he's getting above himself, as they might see it. And he goes in with... Gillespie, you know, who's reluctantly in tow to have this conversation. And what follows is a a fascinating scene. I was telling, I mean, you know that I was going to pick this scene to play, but Mm -hmm. um, so much of it happens silently that it it doesn't really suit the podcast. Yeah. So essentially what happens is he goes up and they start to have, it seems like maybe they're going to have a polite conversation. Yeah. Because Tibbs comes in to the greenhouse where he finds... You know, I mean, already this place has, you know, it's creepy racist vibes. We see a little, you know, a little racist statue of a sort of like a minstrel show. Looks kind like of thing. kind of like a black faced doll sort of thing. Yes. Yeah, sitting in the in the front. And yeah. there's a, you know, a black servant uh, opens the door and 
takes them back to the greenhouse where Endicott is busy with his with his orchids. And we can see that Tibbs, who is, you know, a cultured man of the world, appreciates orchids, knows a little bit about them. In fact, there's a there was a little bit of a clue, we won't get into that, that led him to suspect Endicott that has to do with these orchids. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so he's looking around, he's talking, and they start to share a conversation, Endicott and Tibbs, about the orchids that seems like like they're respecting each other. Yeah. Before we see it turn and Endicott basically says, oh, it's interesting that you like these orchids because orchids, you know, just like blacks have to be led and nurtured in just the right way or they'll go or they'll go wrong. Yeah. You know, and so clearly it turns ugly. Tibbs, still keeping, you know, a degree of politeness, mm-hmm. starts to explain why it is that... Endicott might be under suspicion, and Endicott is, you know, outraged by this, walks up, and right as Tibbs is just in the middle of a sentence, just smacks him. And the shocking aspect is that Tibbs slaps him right back. Mm -hmm. Not even a moment of hesitation, hesitation, just immediately, yeah, immediately turns and slaps him back. And this is not only, you know, in the context of the movie, a shocking scene, but to audiences, this was a shocking scene. This was something that you would not see on television yeah. or, you know, at the movies. You did not see a black person, you know, a, a, a especially a black person who is meant to be the hero of the film slapping a white person. Yeah, yeah. And everybody, everybody is shocked by this. And by the way, I don't know if this is true. Uh, uh, Sydney later said that he improved the, or not improv, but added to the script yeah. the idea of slapping There's back. There's some dispute over that, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's disputed. And I tend to I mean, it's so integral to so many things that happen afterward that I kind of tend to think that probably it wasn't yeah, added in because it just seems like that's a lot to change late in the game with how this incident plays out later. Uh yeah, just b- based on uh some of the other stuff I'd seen was that copies of the original draft of the screenplay they 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 include him slapping back uh but there's also apparently there there was a a note that originally originally like outside of the original script it was not included the original script said tibbs has all he can do to restrain himself the butler drops his head starts to pray for him uncle tom tibbs says furiously not for me so the counter slap appears in the revised step outline so I, okay. I I think that it sounds like it was an iterative process, kind of like you know George Lucas's Star Wars, where it sounds like there were quite a few voices that kind of <laughs> shaped <laughs> uh, that shaped that scene into what it was. There's our Star Wars reference Easter egg for all you longtime <laughs> listeners. <laughs> What'll it be next episode? Stay tuned to find out. Uh, but yeah, it's it's it it wouldn't surprise me if Poitier had a had a hand in the creation of that scene, but it sounds like it was not nearly as improvised as initially uh, indicated. He, he knows uh, he, he certainly pushed for Yeah, Tibbs is not a character who is going to just take these things lying down. You know, he has um, a certain level of polish kind of righteous indignation incarnate. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. And he's not going to, you know, it's not going to be like the, like a Martin Luther King, like, you know, turn the other cheek sort of thing. He's a character who has his own, yeah, you know, righteous indignation. And it's not even something that he, as we see, that he really considers. It's a like a, you know, a reflex. 
he's slapped, he slaps mm-hmm. back. Um, to me, the thing that makes this scene so memorable watching now um, is not the slap, but immediately after. When they leave and we stay with, the camera stays with Endicott for a moment. We see the the black uh, butler or manservant or whatever he is sort of shake his head in disgust and walk off, which, uh, yeah, what, what that means is another, I, you know, I don't know. But um, then we see Endicott sort of just break down and start sobbing. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was such a powerful moment because to me, it feels so much like, it, it feels like someone who who just can't comprehend the world not going the way that he wants yes. it to go. Like here, here are the, he, these are the rules of how things are. And, you know, he's not in pain from the, from the slap. I, I don't think, I don't even think he's so much insulted as he is just shocked, upset that, that life as he understands it, as he has built, as he has tried to frame up and, and exist in is changing. Yeah. You know, he, he says that there's a time when I, I, I'm getting this a little out of order, unfortunately, because Gillespie has this line where he says, you know, you saw Endicott says, you saw that he slapped me. What are you going to do about it? And Gillespie just says, I don't know. <laughs> In this kind of like there's it's there's a bit of shock. There's a bit of malice. There's a and it's really just such a charged scene yeah. and to see him break down and cry and just this way of ah my time is at its end. You know, it's the 60s, me, the, the power that I represent, this, you know, unmitigated white superiority is is threatened. And what is he going to do in this world? Yeah. You know, how is he going to exist yeah. without this structure? That's a, that's a, that's a great take on it. Yeah. It's, it, it wasn't just a slap to the face. It was shaking the foundations of his entire universe. Um, I thought, I thought Endicott was, that whole scene with him, from the moment he starts making the comparison between orchids and black people, you just this gross, greasy veneer kind of comes over you. And I, I thought it was interesting because to me, it, it sort of – I thought Endicott was a very humanizing and therefore unsettling look at the psychology of racism – there's a moment like, after Tib slaps him, he says, "There was a moment. There was a time I could have had you shot for that." And it's he talks about it the same way that not too recently you would hear talk about you would hear people talk about the good old days back when America was great. You know, like you know, there was a time when you wouldn't get to do what you're doing right yeah. now. Yeah, <laughs> almost kind of pining for it. And uh, to me, it was this the, the all too real side of racism, which is the kind that dresses up nice, puts on a good face, and truly believes itself to be good and righteous. And almost kind of like almost claiming stewardship of an entire, you know, group of people. Yeah. Like the, like you're doing them a favor. And, you know, considering recent developments, I would say just as just as with the Civil War, plantation owners never went away. They just put on a they, 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 they dressed up nice and put on a good face. It seems like. To me, it still hasn't fully gone away. It's just found a nicer suit and a better face. Just this idea, like, you recognize some traces of, com- and for me at least, traces of conversations I've had with people in my own life where they'll, they will express a similar sentiment to his statement about how the, the line specifically is talking about the flower. Just like the Negro, they take time, care, and cultivating. That's something you can't make people understand, which it's, 
yeah, it's this feeling of like, uh, if only, if only people could see the truth, the way that I see it, that we are, that we're, you know, we're doing them favors with. Yeah. And it's just, it feels very unsettling and very gross because of how, I mean, I think partially how close to home it hits because you know, you, there's people like that, that they never really go away. Yeah. And, and it's the, you know, it's the insult to dignity, which if, you know, for whatever flaws Tibbs has, and he is a character with flaws, he's a character that exudes dignity. Yeah. You know, he's very upright, very polished, sophisticated, well-spoken, well-dressed. You know, he's clearly meant, you know, he personifies this, well, you know, dignity. Yeah. And so to see being treated, you know, even in this way that's supposed to be sort of, you know, this character that that sets himself up anyway, as sort of a almost a benevolent father figure to the colored peoples of the world, mm-hmm. kind of is the way that you can imagine him sort of seeing himself. Yeah. And just what an insult that is to uh, uh, arguably the most intelligent, competent person in this film. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So on the the psychology of racism and leading into perhaps the these you know the two main characters which are at the heart mm-hmm. of this film I want to talk a little bit about Gillespie's racism. Yeah. Because what I think is interesting is to me I don't read him as having any intellectual commitment to racism. It's not the sort of racism that says Oh, I've thought about it. You know, I've looked, I've observed black people and white people, and I can see that white people are better. They're smarter. To me, he is much more concerned about power and hierarchy in this new town. He is an outsider there. He has come in, and this is a terrific performance from, from Rod Steger. He comes in as an outsider. He's trying to establish himself, you know, as we, we understand that he's a, you know, he's a lonely character. He's a bitter character. And he's full of, you know, machismo, mm-hmm. and he's trying to be the aggressive male that he feels he needs to be to do his job. Yeah. And what happens is somebody who is meant to be beneath him, according to the structures of society, I don't think he really cares about that. I don't think that he necessarily thinks that, you know, that black people are stupid or even that Tibbs is stupid as much as he feels like. I've got to protect my position, and I understand from the way that things go that you are beneath me, and so you cannot come up and be alongside me. And then to deal – I think it's more for for him. Maybe it's best put this way. I think in a vacuum, you know, he doesn't care. Yeah. I think with people watching, now he cares. Yeah. He does not want – he does not want anyone in the city to see him getting outdone and, uh, you know, and talked down to – by a black person of all people. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I think, what really irks him more than anything. I think that, you know, if no one else was there, then he wouldn't care. He would have just as much bitterness or malice as he has toward any other person in his <laughs> life. You know, yeah. no more, no more, no less. His his racism almost seems kind of born of a benign, almost lazy uh, pragmatism. Yeah, I think so. Which I think is an interesting, again, an interesting nuance that we get to see in this film, which handles the issue of racism in in a sophisticated and intriguing way. Yeah. Unsettling because we can we can understand it. But yeah, we see, I think, in this film, people who, you know, I, I mean, 
I mean, think about even the character of quickly, the character of Harvey, that suspect that's pulled in. Yeah. Who is immediately outraged about being handled by a black person who is offended by being put in the same jail cell because there's a moment where Tibbs is put in, in jail for a moment for a bit with with mm-hmm. him. And, you know, and he's insulted about being in the same cell as a black person. But it, it quickly seems to lead like there's no I, I don't feel like they, there's a lot of commitment to his racism. It's just a sort of a thing that he knows exists in society. He's just going along with it, which is one of the, you know, the sad and insidious things about racism. Yeah. Because as soon as Tibbs establishes an in with him, he, you know, he he's suddenly perfectly fine with interacting with that character and not yeah. in a way that seems inconsistent, in a way that feels like it plays into the psychology of who this guy is. Yeah, you yeah. Know, he's insulted because, again, it's that male posturing. Who is he? You know, what, you're going to arrest me? I didn't do it. What, you're going to drag me in here? What, you're going to have a you're gonna have a black person touch me? Like I don't think so. Yeah. But you know, once it's just once it's just the two of them, then well, he's just another guy, you know. And in fact, he's a guy that he kind of likes because he's helping him out and he seems to understand him. Yeah, that's a really interesting take on it because I think yeah, with with Harv and with Gillespie, with with a good number of the police on the force, really, it seems like racism is almost a matter of convenience. It's a matter of of stewing in one's environment long enough. And that's that's something I've thought about recently is how much, you know, how much a world a person's worldview is just shaped by where they happen to be. You know, it's that's where you grow up, what what you yeah. interact with, the 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 worldviews that you are immersed in, they can they can shape a lot of who you are as a person, but then you can see how quickly it strips away when it's not a matter of conviction. And that's one thing I think gets kind of lost in the discourse probably back then as well as today, is I guess acknowledging what kind of racist you're talking to when you are talking to somebody who demonstrates racism. Like, is this a person <laughs> with conviction who who seems convinced of some dogmatic superiority? Or is it somebody who they just haven't had to think about it before? They just, they, you know, they've, it's just, it's just yeah. the, the hierarchy that they're familiar with. I mean, everybody Everybody has, you know, we all rely on prejudice and stereotypes. And yeah. we talked about it in the way it works in film, too. And they essentially are shortcuts. That's what they are. Rather than, you know, you look at a person and rather than, you know, taking the time, you know, perhaps it's evolutionary, you know, perhaps it's just part of human nature. We look at some, we go like, ah, that person, you know, is is big, they're this color, they're that color, they're wearing these kind of clothes. And we immediately start building up different assumptions. And you yeah. know, the mark of you know human compassion and nuance and sophistication and intelligence is learning to cultivate you know a suspension of judgment against other people until you have something legitimate to work with, yeah, rather than just an appearance. And but the way that ties in right to this this male posturing and this pride and the types of racism leads me to the clip that I actually did pull out in the end. Yeah, and may, maybe we can play that because. As we're getting into Tibbs and Gillespie and the nature of their relationship and who they are as characters, this, I think, is another great moment where it's a little hard to explain in the podcast, but there's basically a few moments where Tibbs gets dragged in, has an opportunity to leave the case, and then gets dragged back. And this is one of them. Mm -hmm. And here is Gillespie sort of coming up. He's trying to induce Tibbs to stay, even though... 
the welcome from him and everyone else has been anything but warm. Yeah. And this is the tactic he uses to get him to stay. Now you listen to me. Just once in my life, I'm going to hold my temper. I'm telling you that you're going to stay here. You're going to stay here if I have to go inside and call your chief of police and have him remind you of what he told you to do. But I don't think I have to do that, you see. No, because you're so damn smart. You're smarter than any white man. You're just going to stay here and show us all. You got such a big head that you could never live with yourself unless you could put us all to shame. You want to know something, Virgil? I don't think that you could let an opportunity like that pass by. Man, that acting is so good. His performance. Yeah. And so what happens there, they stare each other down, and then without a word, Tibbs just picks up his his luggage that he was using, you know, they're at the train station, and he leaves, not getting on the train, and follows him. Basically, you know, tacitly admitting, you're right, (laughs) you know, (laughs) I've I've got something to prove here, (laughs) and I'm going to prove, yep, you got me, I'm going to prove that this, you know, this, this uppity colored person from out of town is yeah I've I can solve this and you can't uh-huh. and you know I think it's it's fascinating to watch how many times Gillespie has to swallow his pride to some extent mm-hmm. I mean he doesn't really very much he's a very he's a very proud and angry person but you can see how many times he decides he's he's figured it out and he's sure and he really just wants to ride that home and he doesn't even care. And then Tibbs will say something that's just enough evidence to show him that he was wrong again. And he sort of reluctantly has to keep from flying off the handle again and just sort of stew there and then just kind of walk away and go, all right, you're right again. Yeah. And again. And again. Yeah. By, by the end of the film, doesn't he get the wrong guy like three times <laughs> by the end of the movie? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yes. So he just has to keep has to keep dealing with this. And I, I think it's, you know, the way that he plays the part. And, you know, he's such an interesting actor because I sometimes wonder if he's, I mean, in this film, he gets the, he's the one who, who is Oscar nominated, not, not Sydney. And I think that, you know, so in that, you know, he did get praise for this film and his spot. But I think about, you know, one of the other famous films that he's in is On the Waterfront with Marlon mm. Brando. He's in the in the very famous I could have been a contender scene, you know, Marlon Brando, I could have been a contender, I could have been a somebody. Yeah, you know? yeah. That he's saying that to Rod Steger, that he, that's the other actor in the car. And that nobody talks about him or thinks about him, you know, because Marlon Brando, you know, changes acting and is known, you know, in the late 50s and is known as or in the 50s and is one of the, you know, great actors of all time. Yeah, yeah. Where Rod Steger is you know, is not going to be on any greatest actors of all time list like Marlon Brando is. But I mean, this is a terrific performance. Yeah. And every performance I've seen him in, it is good. And yet he's, I mean, th- this performance is so, the, the performance of the two leads is so convincing and nuanced and volatile that seeing productions, like behind the scenes production photos, I've seen a couple photos where like they've got their arms around each other and they're smiling and clearly palling and it feels so wrong. Like you look at it and you're like, wait, what? Because you're just so convinced about the levels of hatred that these, you know, and and 
the smallness and pettiness of this character. You just can't, you, you have to remind yourself that, oh, yeah, I'm sure that Rod Steger himself, <laughs> obviously, to be able to play this part with the nuance that he does and to understand it and to agree to it is not that guy. You know, yeah. He's, he's clearly going to be a guy who's, uh, you know, who, who's, who's, He's not a racist, but so it's, it's just funny to shocking almost to look at that photo. Yeah. That reminds me of, uh, did you, did you hear that there was, there were some stories about when the movie first came out, that scene where Tibbs slaps Indicott back was a huge Mm -hmm. shocker in the theaters. There was, uh, apparently Jewison, the, the director, he was concerned initially that the audience he was watching it with, they were kind of chuckling at some parts and he thought, oh crap, they're thinking this is a comedy. But when when he slaps Endicott back, the entire audience just goes dead silent. And then he, he, that was when Jewison, you know, he was like, okay, this is, this is working. Um, and there was yeah. actually a story with uh, specifically with Poitier and Steger. They would, they would go to the Capitol theater in New York sometimes, and they would just sort of watch the audience during the slap and they would gauge how many black and white audience members there were based on how many people would go, Oh, and how many people would cheer when when he when he slaps him back? <laughs> Apparently, they would go wow. together and do that. And that's just that's a fun image to imagine. You know, Gillespie yeah. and Tibbs just sitting in the back of a theater, just kind of like, oh, look at that! Like, just, just gauging the yeah. audience reacting to a to that that pivotal slap scene. But it's cool to know they were good friends. Yeah, that, that it is satisfying to know, especially after you know enduring so much. <laughs> you know, watching so much hate and indignation throughout this, yeah. throughout this film. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, uh, I guess maybe we can talk for just a moment about kind of the way this all ties up. We, we've said, and I agree that I, I don't have any, like you, I don't have any problems with the mystery of the film. Like the, I mean, the mystery, the plot, you know. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it's clearly secondary to... You know, the more important aspect is the relationship between these these two men and the way that this town is reacting to to Tibbs. Yeah. That's at the heart of the film. But I think it's serviceable. You know, it's not it's not the sort of mystery that gives, you know, um, I read uh, one critic put it nicely that, um, you know, we're essentially dependent on Tibbs to do everything for us. Like he gives us information at the time that the audience needs to know it, it you know. Sometimes without really explaining how it is that he knows these things, and yeah. you know, there's, there's, it's not the sort of mystery where if you, you know, if you watched it carefully, you could solve it too. Um, right, right. We're completely dependent on, you know, sort of outside things and things that happen off screen and so on to to figure out how it goes. But at the same time, it's, you know, it's not something ridiculous or out of left field anything like that it fits together yeah. with the other pieces that that we've been given and is satisfactory and again coming off of i think that nice blend of genre meets meets art meets message or whatever mm-hmm. because i think norman jewison is a person with a very diverse filmography the director i'm speaking of mm-hmm. um and someone who's films you know in all their different genres and so on he's he's a person who makes you know, entertaining movies. That's that's the thread the of his films. They're yeah. they're entertaining. You know, I mean, we go from things like Fiddler on the Roof, In the Heat of the Night, Moonstruck. You know, lots of different types wow. of movies here. I had no idea he made those. And they're and they're entertaining films. You know, they're not they're not art house films. They're not 
all films with immense social commentary. They're just entertaining films. And I think yeah. this is a director, it seems to me like this is a director who's tapping into the time that he's in going, okay, it's the sixties. This is what's on America's mind. Mm -hmm. What, what could we play with? What sort of, you know, story could we tease out here that has some entertainment and some bite to it? Yeah. And they, you know, and then in the heat of the night is born. But do you, do you have any, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about uh, the way that plays out or the, you know, the, we mentioned the mysterious erotic girl and her return and the keeper of the, the, of the, the diner, you know, and the, right, and the yeah. solution to the crime, any of that? Yeah. Yeah. You get this kind of, you get this kind of crazy triangle of, of violence between the girl, what was her name? Dorothy? can't remember uh dolores i think dolores dolores yeah you get dolores you get you get wood the cop who uh <laughs> you get officer wood the cop who who's ogling her through the window you get the diner the the owner of the yeah. diner who has been carrying on a relationship with her you get her brother who is clearly a protective and volatile person it's like you know all the pieces are there which is why i think it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like you said, the conclusion doesn't come out of nowhere. And I wouldn't even say it's entirely unsatisfying. It's just kind of, it, it, it felt like the, it, it felt the mystery aspect and the, the murder aspect felt like an episode out of a, out of an above average serial drama, you know, like a, like a cop show or something, Yeah, which I think was serviceable. It was kind of like, uh, you know, it's like the, the, the murder, the murder mystery was the rice and the story with, with uh, Tibbs and Gillespie was the, delicious zesty curry over the top of it it was this so it was it was a, it was a vehicle to to carry the flavor all the way home yeah it, it works if it's in there but you know if it was on its own it would just be a bowl of plain rice yeah yeah some of the when i was looking through critical reception some of the net a good number of the negative reviews panned it specifically for how mundane the murder mystery was they they seemed like they were Largely uninterested in the mm. social commentary, the addressing of racism and things like that. They were more just kind of like, well, that was a lame mystery. You know, they were they <laughs> two out of five stars, which <laughs> there there was one. The, yeah, the most negative, I think, was two out of four, actually. And yeah, it was a lady who she, she called it heavy handed. And I, I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but she, she called it heavy handed and said the mystery was disappointing and. That was something I was thinking about actually as I was watching it. I was I was thinking specifically about Jordan Peele's recent movie Get Out, which I think is a is, is a lot more heavy-handed and and less nuanced than this movie was. Yeah. But I there was a coworker I had who was a really really swell guy, but after seeing Get Out, he left it and he was just kind of like, "Did they really have to make it about race though?" And I <laughs> kind of cock my head to the side and be like, what would it, what movie were you expecting? <laughs> like what what movie would it have been yeah. if not if if race hadn't been a, a key element? And I think yeah, th this is a movie. Watching it, I I have all these. My upbringing has created a schizophrenia in, in my you know I've got these these multiple voices in my head from my upbringing of various teachers and acquaintances and stuff, and just hearing them reacting to it as I'm watching it of just being like, oh, do they have to like. You know, it's a murder mystery about, a, you know, this this guy, like this industrialist. Does it really have to be about race? Do they have to make it a racial thing? Which, again, this was a movie that, for its time, 
I mean, just, just like today, it's, it is relevant. Race is relevant. And it is a, yeah. a, a core integral aspect of the human experience, more integral than I think a lot of people are willing to admit, uh, especially on, on the white end of it, of we, we, we have a hard time acknowledging, and I could see why this movie would be an uncomfortable experience for a lot of people. Like you said, with, with, with Tibbs uh, being so handsy with evidence and with, with, with the bodies and with interrogations and stuff, there's, it, it crosses a line that some people, I mean, as I say that out loud, I'm thinking like this shouldn't even be considered a line cross. But the fact that it is that it was considered crossing a line is proof that it was a line that needed to be crossed. Yeah, you know, people don't like the discomfort, but it's interesting to me that people would call it heavy-handed because to me that's it succeeds so well. I mean, mm-hmm. I think there are, there are so many films where you know a racial element or an element of discrimination or something is sort of shoe shoehorned in or feels very heavy handed or preachy. But this is a film that I think achieves that balance really well. It does. In part because we're dealing with characters who feel like actual individuals. Mm-hmm. And even though we know that you know some of the characters have our sympathy much more than other characters, none of them feels like they are representing any group. Like I don't feel like, ah, this this character represents black people or this character represents whites or this character represents exactly. the police. They feel like individuals and they're pulling off actual, you know, things that are in the tapestry of the world that we live in to create this story. Yeah. And it's to the point where especially with a story like this, it doesn't even make sense to be like, "Oh, why did they have to bring in the race element?" It's it's there, like it exists, and so it yeah. would be bizarre to not acknowledge it. Exactly. In, it would be in this story. Like, how on earth are you going to have a story, you know, that takes place? I mean, it's essentially saying, I don't think this story should be told. Because how are you going to have a story that takes place in the 60s, you know, with a black man in Mississippi? Now, obviously, the story has been chosen and was probably written to highlight some of this, you know, these racial issues. So in that case, yeah. But you essentially have to either agree to tell the story or not at all, because yeah. there's no way to tell it and ignore that or to downplay it. It would just make it silly because yeah. that's what was going on there at this time. Yeah, the racial aspect was no accident, but it was. It's not, it's not like it wasn't organic. It felt very real. Yes. And even, you know, I mean, Tibbs has sort of his own racial issues that he deals with as well. I mean, you can see that or, or perhaps it's more sliding into, you know, I think – it's easy to label every every negative thing in this film. I mean, all the all the hatred and bitterness. It's easy to put it all into the group of racism, and I think racism colors all of it. But like I said, I think there's a lot of it that has to deal with hierarchy, with masculine pride, with proving oneself. I think that contributes to the bitterness just as much as racism does. It's sort of like if you have a you know this stew of bitterness and you throw racism in as an ingredient rather than racism being the the stew itself mm-hmm. and i mean we see for instance tibbs says at one point that he was blinded by how much he wanted to strike down endicott you know he was insulted by endicott he didn't like that endicott uh, you know held the position that he held he was definitely a guy with something to prove and that distracted him for a while from seeing the actual solution 
to the murder because of his own prejudices. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, we're, we have much more sympathy with a character who is prejudiced against, you know, who has bitterness toward a racist, you know, sort of overlord than we yeah. do toward the overlord. But it's still a fact that it's still a fact that, you know, there are lapses in his judgment from his own pride and from his own yeah. stereotypes. Well, and that's something that I love because the mere fact that he shows bias and prejudice, I think, further illustrates a theme of the entire movie, which is that racism and prejudice are bad. Obviously, they are bad. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, that's the theme of the movie. Racism is bad. No, uh, it's, it's that racism itself is bad and should be addressed and everything. But paradoxically, it is possible to be both a good person and a person with prejudice. Which could be, because, yeah. again, like, like we're talking about Officer Wood being kind of the inverse Barney Fife. He, he really doesn't seem like a terrible guy. He is, he is incredibly racist and antagonistic at the start of the film, and he doesn't have nearly as much of a developmental arc as Gillespie does. But by the end of the film, again, it's like you say, everybody feels like a character. They don't feel like, uh, like, a, like an archetype. They feel like they are just people. And you get the idea that, like, wow, this guy would be awesome if he wasn't such a racist. And, and then you kind of realize, I don't know, in a, in a way to me, it's a little bit hopeful, I guess, that it, it is possible for a good person to have misconceptions born of environment, born of limited experience, whatever it is, that racists are people too, and that you can you can maybe use that as a stepping off point to addressing it. I think it kind of speaks to, you know, what what Roger Ebert said about film, which is he called movies empathy machines mm. right and to me that's something that this film does it is it is breaking down and it is exposing stories in a way that does not insult your intelligence that does not come in with uh this is the good guy take and so we need to preach that to everybody it's yeah. it's just showing you it's showing you a story with individuals and yes it it has its its message but it's a nuanced and sophisticated one and so mm -hmm. you can watch it and begin to see and understand. And none of the characters goes through some big cheesy redemption. None of them goes like, oh, turns out, you know, I was all wrong about this and that. They all just sort of sit with new information. And that new information yeah. affects them to varying degrees. But there's no denying that it's happened. They've encountered someone. They had these ideas. Those ideas turned out to be incorrect. And now they're faced with they can either ignore that they can hate that. They can think about it a lot or a little. That's up to them and their own life circumstances and intelligence and whatever else. But the fact is it happened. And I think it shows, you know, I mean, that's part of, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why racism was, you know, particular sets of racism were more prevalent in the South than in the North. But part yeah. of it is the level at which people are interacting with each other. In the big northern cities, you know, where there was a little bit more equal footing, they have to confront their their preconceived notions more and more. There's more information to deal with, more that they have to rest with. And it becomes more difficult to keep those lazy stereotypes in that situation. Whereas if you're in a community that is willfully keeping people segregated, then it's much easier to continue to rely on those stereotypes as 
that shortcut to get you through life because your interactions are limited and constrained artfully often to reinforce the ideas that you already had. Mm -hmm. Black people are subservient. How do I know this? Because, well, whenever I run into them, you know, they're uneducated and they're servants. So yeah, if I think about it at all, that's how I think about it. And I don't have to ever deal with them as a boss or as a colleague or as somebody who's giving me something that I want or has information that I need. You know, that's not the way that I have to interact with them. So I never have to be faced with that idea. Yeah. And I think that's essentially what this film does is it brings in a character who is extremely competent, intelligent, who has help to give, who has a fleshed out personality with flaws and strengths, and everybody has to sort of deal with him. They don't want to. They try and have him leave. He tries to leave himself, but circumstances keep pushing them together. And therefore, mm -hmm. it's a matter of change or don't. But, well, it's sort of it's, – it's more difficult to go back to the way things were. You know, you can imagine that for a lot right. of people in this town, they're not going to be able to just slide back into exactly the way it was. Some of them may ignore it. You know, it's not like racism has been solved by the end of this movie. <laughs> we did it, gang. <laughs> but uh, – Yeah. I think, honestly, uh, as I was watching it, I was thinking, you know, uh, this is a movie that I think needs to be seen by – Everyone, for that reason, I think it's I think it's an important movie. I think it's a well-made movie. I would hope that it that it that it resonates with people in the way that a lot of other films that tackle racism fail to do. Yeah, either by being too heavy-handed or too patronizing. Because you know, I think about films like Remember the Titans, where you know it's again you've got your clear racist bad guys and your 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 open-minded good guys, and I think about. Uh, John Mulaney's bit where he talks about Schindler's List and there's this little girl saying, goodbye, Jews, just yelling at this as they go by, just this cartoonishly villainous community. But uh, it presents it in such a way that, that, once again, looking at racism as a matter of convenience, this is something that I didn't even think that much about before I saw this film. The idea that for a lot of people like Gillespie, it's it, it, for them, it's not... And again, there are there obviously are plenty of of people who are racist out of a out of a conviction that is disturbing and distressing. Yeah. But you get people, you get people like Gillespie who I think about you know in the midst of recent events with the the protests and the and the police and everything else, you get people who they they wouldn't they wouldn't consider themselves racist and on a deep functioning level they may not even be you know, racist, uh, at least not on the level of which they get accused. But for a lot of people, the reason they might push back and the reason they might exhibit racism isn't necessarily out of out of their own perceived superiority to another race. It could just be that they fear change and they don't like being called out. You know, they don't like – people don't like being wrong. They don't like being in the wrong. They don't like – they don't like being put on the spot. And on a, on a deep – instinctual level they don't like change so whenever they're whenever something proposes that a change needs to happen and that it needs to change because of something that may potentially be not maybe not their fault it, it directly but a byproduct of their actions and their worldview and things so it's I, th I think that the movie does a really good job of presenting racism that exists not from a place necessarily of ill intent but just habit and I think that that's something that uh, – it makes it a lot easier to invite self-reflection, I think. 
So, I, yeah, I, as far as who would like this movie, I hope everyone likes this movie. I, I think that everybody should watch it. I would hope that everyone likes it. It's 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 really good. I can't I, – I'm sure I can think of some people who wouldn't like it, but I can't think of anybody who who shouldn't like it. <laughs> it's, it's really good. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think it's a movie that's well worth seeing. Um, I think – it's worth seeing because it's entertaining and well-made. I think it's mm-hmm. worth seeing because the acting is good. I think it's worth seeing in terms of American history and the mm-hmm. time that it falls in and what it captures from that moment. And I think also from film history because as much as it's doing things that are are showing things that are changing in America, it's showing things that are changing in film also. So I think it's worth tuning yeah. in for that. And also I think it's a film that Captures its moment really well, but doesn't feel um, dated. You know, yeah. I think that you can you can watch this film and enjoy and appreciate its you know its various takes and messages, and still find you know application and modern you know perhaps <laughs> sadly in some cases find application you know and modern uh, implications in it. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Bo, um, once again, I, I applaud and appreciate your graciousness. You could have, you could have gone to a very dark place after I assigned you bright. <laughs> I love this thing we got going on, Bo. I get to feed you trash and you feed me I'll delicious. I'll bet you do. <laughs> <laughs> and this episode and uh, talking about Bright's popularity made me realize there was a slew of Adam Sandler originals on Netflix. Oh, gosh. I, I totally forgot that Adam Sandler made a bunch of originals. Are there any good Western Truly Criterion w- films, Bo? You wouldn't. Because uh, there's a certain <laughs> there's a certain Western. I, let's see. What's it called? Uh, it's not The Magnificent Seven. It's uh, something. Thanks for listening, <laughs> everybody. Um, <laughs> to be continued. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, thanks for tuning in, everybody. This was This might be my favorite episode we've done so far. These were... These were some very, very high contrast films to each other, but they were both fun to watch for different reasons. I, I look forward to our next one. We're go- going on strong. Yes. All right. Move. We, we really need to, to something. Something has to happen at the end of these episodes. <laughs> keep on, keep, keep on kicking that stream, fellas. All right. Oh, dear. Oh, dear.